When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the 20th episode of A Light On. Um, it feels like uh, only yesterday I started this podcast, but it is uh, sort of a, a little bit of a, a celebration uh, being the 20th episode. And also today, I, uh, I don't have to talk about viruses uh, or anything really scientific, which I usually have to do or do on this show, uh, unless we feel like talking about that, which is totally fine. But um, my guest today is uh, Robert W. Sullivan IV. He's a best-selling author, uh, writing such books as uh, Cinema Symbolism 1, 2, and 3. Uh, he's a lawyer, historian, a lay theologian, antiquarian, jurist, philosopher, and also a practicing Freemason. So I, I actually found you in an interview uh, on David Icke's channel. And I was kind of, uh, I was kind of shocked because, you know, everything I know about Freemasonry, you know, I, I understood that it was very secretive. So I didn't know that, you know, Freemasons were doing interviews <laughs> and I was like, Oh, this is, this is really cool. You know, I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to talk to a Freemason. So well, how, how does that work? First of all, you know, our, it, we all know it as like a very secretive kind of society type of thing, right? So are you allowed to talk about certain things? Are you not allowed to talk about other things? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm allowed to, you know, write books about Freemasonry. Um, I've written a book called The Royal Arch of Enoch, which is a book about Masonic history and symbolism. So yeah, I mean, I'm allowed. uh, There are certain things that are sort of off limits. Um, The one thing that you're not supposed to disclose is uh, what are called like the, the tokens of recognition, like the past grips or the passwords or things like that. So when I write it, when I mention it in the book, I usually just write the initials down or I just leave like a blank space. It's, you know, that, that's kind of like what's off limits. But no, mm-hmm. um, Freemasons um, can, can talk about the craft. They can talk about the symbolism. They can talk about the history, the philosophy. Uh, they can talk about the rituals. Um, like I said, I've written a, a very large uh, book about it, um, along with the movie books and another work of fiction. So, no, um, you know, I, I've been doing this now for nine years. Um, and, uh, you know, I've never gotten any sort of reprimand or anything like that from Freemasonry or anything like that or, or, or anything. It's, it's usually the exact opposite. I've been invited to speak at countless Masonic lodges. Um, I have spoken at Masonic lodges. Occasionally, I'll get an um, email from a Mason um, who, you know, maybe says, oh, tone it back a little bit. Um, and this is why this, yeah, this, this was this is why I added the word um, in my descriptions, in my descriptors, I added the word showman. Um, you know, and I always say, look, when I'm doing these shows, these podcasts, I must be afforded a certain level of theatrics, um, you know, and controversy and things like that. But no, I, I've been I've been a Freemason now for years, over 20 years. And um, like I said, it's something I, I don't I don't shy away from. It would be a mistake for me to shy away from it. So, you know, any, any question you have, if I can answer it, I'll be more than happy to. Cool. Uh, I'm kind of surprised to hear that they don't mind you talking about the rituals. That's one thing I would have guessed is like, you know, kind of off limits. No, um, well, the, 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 if, if you're talking about like the, his, the f- philosophy and the rituals, um, that, that's actually allowed. It's, it's the thing that they, if, if you read the Masonic history books and, and, and things like that, um, 
the the one thing that's kind of off limits that they they kind of stress that they don't want you talking about is like the signs of recognition, the passwords, the tokens, but certainly the rituals. I mean, a lot of this is part of the public record anyway at this point in time. Um, I mean, you know, you, you you can go online and get you know free PDF versions of the Masonic ritual, Duncan's Masonic monitor, things like that. So I mean, it's it's certainly out there. And as long as you're doing it in the context, I mean, as long as you're doing it as a Mason from a historical context, like, hey, I'm trying to shed light on the symbolism of the ritual, trying to explain it, you know, what its deeper meanings of mean, meanings are or or um, that's acceptable. Like I said, what they frown upon is giving away the signs, the tokens, the passwords, things like that. Gotcha. Interesting. So. For for people who maybe aren't uh, very well versed in what Freemasonry is, can you give us a sort of a uh, a background on you know what what is Freemasonry? Why did it start? And also, uh, you know, why did you want to join? How did you get involved with it? Sure, um, Freemasonry. The origins of it, the actual true origins of it, are pretty much lost to history. Um, depending on who you want to believe. I mean, some people trace it all the way back to the Tower of Babel. Some people trace it all the way back to Adam in the garden, you know, and, and that the apron, you know, the fig leaf is the Masonic apron. Of course, no Freemason really believes all this. Um, I mean, it certainly has, it, it certainly is definitely on the history pages, um, you know, in the Middle Ages um, with medieval cathedral building, things like that. I mean, there were stonemason guilds. And at some point in time, they started admitting non-stonemasons into their society. And what I mean by that, these are what are called speculative masons. These are people who are like doctors, lawyers, physicians, who are joining these craft lodges for basically the idea of being able to speak freely, um, you know, in a lodge setting. Um, it officially comes on the history pages on June 24th, 1717. That's the official formation of, of Freemasonry, it definitely exists beforehand, especially in places like Scotland, um, you know, where, where, where Masonry goes w- way back, um, you know, with, 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 again, with the cathedral building, with, with, with stone masons, things like that. It officially comes on the, um, you know, like I said, the history pages on June 24th. It's a fraternal organization. It becomes very popular um, and, you know, it spreads to the United States. It usually spreads very quickly um, you know, wherever it goes, it, it, it's, it's a very popular institution. Um, the requirements to re- joining it is you have to be a male and you have to be a, you have to believe in a supreme being. You can't be an atheist. Um, why, why it's created and things like that, you know, you can get into some of the more controversial um, as- aspects of it. Um, some maintain, you know, that it's just, it's just, there's nothing more to it than these stonemason guilds um, and, uh, you know, people were joining it to, to try to gain, you know, further wisdom and things like that. Um, that's all fair and fine. Um, there is probably, uh, you know, when you're dealing with Freemasonry, you're dealing with the rituals, you're dealing with a lot of esoteric traditions. When you're dealing with ideas related to Gnosticism, alchemy, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. I mean, it, that's the one thing that's so fascinating about it is it incorporates many religious theologies and philosophies in it. Um, you know, if you go back in time and you start researching this, there's a group that sort of pops up on the scene called the Rosicrucians that mm-hmm. probably never existed. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's people are like looking for the Rosicrucians, but they, they, they don't seem to really exist. Who are propagating this idea of reformation, universal brotherhood, universal wisdom. Masonry draws a lot on that. Um, it has been suggested if you really kind of re- read between the pages of this, that the 
craft was sort of formulated in England as almost like a, re a, a reaction to the counter-reformation um, and specifically the Society of Jesus, that essentially masonry became sort of this Ballwick against the counter-reformation and as the Jesuits were using hermeticism and Kabbalistic sorcery, sort of this, this Masonic solar brotherhood emerged to kind of combat, combat that, you know, you know, you had the sort of Protestant reformation and the Jesuits, you know, formulating the, the counter-reformation. And if you read between the lines of this, it seems like the, the Masonic lodge is almost formulated as sort of a reaction to the society of Jesus, like a Protestant version of that. Mm -hmm. Um, that's me. I mean, that's not official. That's not official Masonic canon. But if you sort of read between the pages of history, that seems to be kind of what's going on. Um, that's Blue Lodge Freemasonry. And then, of course, you have the high degrees of Freemasonry, which is a whole other story. Um, I became a, a Freemason, um, let's see, in 19. So, you know, I mean, this is over 25 years ago now. I, I first petitioned the lodge in 1996. Um, I was in between um, for me, and this is just me personally speaking, I was in between college. I just got out of college, but this was before I went to law school. And um, I, I knew a, um, a, mutual acquaintance, a mutual acquaintance of my mother and father who was a Freemason. And I was out to dinner with them. And I just posed the question. I said, hey, I see your Masonic ring. I know you're a Mason. You know, I'd like to join. You know, you always hear the expression to, to be one, ask one. Um, and I did. And he, he kind of said, okay, you know, and, you know, let me get the ball rolling on this. This was in the summer of 1996. And it was a couple of weeks later, I got the petition in the mail. I filled it out. I sent the check in with it. And uh, the next thing I knew, uh, you know, I had a, 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 a group of Masons who wanted to interview me, you know, sort of committee. They set up a committee to interview the candidate. Um, I went through that. Um, then they voted on my petition and uh, I, you know, was voted in. I didn't get the black ball. And I went through the uh, Blue Lodge rituals in uh, 1997. I did, let's see here. I did the... Um, entered apprentice in January of 97. I did the uh, fellow craft in May of 97. And I did the master Mason degree in, let's see, that would have been September of 97. And then I did the Scottish Rite high body. And uh, that's one of the high degrees of Freemasonry. I did that in October of 99. So um, I I've been involved with it for uh, many moons now. Okay. Wow. Um, so what would you say are sort of the underlying like spiritual, spiritual allegories of Freemasonry? Um, you know, I, I came across a, a quote by uh, Manly P. Hall in his book, uh, The Lost Keys. And he, he seems to state that the, you know, the modern lodge system has forgotten those underlying spiritual allegories. Um, are you aware of those teachings? And, are, you know, are, do you feel like they're being uh, taught, taught today? Right. It's a great question. Um, there is definitely a lot of esoteric and, you know, occult symbolism and meanings with the rituals and the symbols um, that as irrefutable, what happened, what, what happened was in the 1820s, there was something known as the William Morgan affair, where in the United States, masonry had to divest itself of any sort of leanings towards the esoteric. Um, th there was a guy named William Morgan who was threatening to expose masonry secrets. He was arrested on trumped up charges essentially the Freemasons dragged him out of uh, jail in the middle of the night, took him over the Canadian border. This was in Batavia, New York, I, want to, I, think, I believe it was. Took him over the Canadian border, he was never seen again. Uh, this caused this huge Masonic, uh, anti-Masonic back, you know, backlash in the United States. Masonry survived it, but in, in doing so, it basically completely distanced itself from this esoteric teachings, these underlying uh, philosophies. This carried Masonry through the 19th century, through most of the 20th century, and it really was the advent of the internet that sort of masonry sort of started rediscovering these hermetic occult roots 
um, that it had. And this is one of my motivations for writing the book. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. When you're dealing with, I mean, I'll just stick to the Blue Lodge. I mean, you're definitely dealing with a lot of, I mean, you know, uh, you know, of, of, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of Egyptian allegory. You're dealing with a lot of Hebrew allegory. You're dealing with a lot of, um, of this may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but um, mystical Islam, Sufism. Um, you're dealing with that. You know, you know what you call mystical Christian Christianity. I mean, you have the whole third degree risk ritual of sort of what you'd call the dying and resurrected solar god man uh, theme. You know, you could call this character Hiram Abif in the ritual. I mean, you call him Jesus Christ in Christianity. You call him Osiris in the Egyptian, you know, you know, religion. Uh, you know, this whole idea of the resurrection sun god man is probably the easiest way for me to describe it. I mean, you you know, you know, when you do the third degree ritual, you're you're clearly dealing with, um, you know, sort of a retelling of this idea of the death and resurrection of this, you know, solar solar man, um, as it were. Um, and, and you'll find nexuses again to the um, Egyptian Osirian mythology um, with this. You'll find references to, of course, the building of Solomon's temple, which is, uh, you know, he Hebrew mysticism. So, you know, you, you will find that, you know, in the Blue Lodge in itself. And I mean, again, the whole idea, um, in, in my opinion, you know, is, is the candidate is coming in, you know, the candidate to become a Freemason. And he undergoes this allegorical death and rebirth. Um, and I mean, this clearly, you know, harmonizes with, you know, Gnostic theology, this idea of coming to know thyself, um, you know, the idea of your old self being, is being killed off, and you're being brought to wisdom, you're being brought to light. Um, this is the terminology that's frequently used in masonry, you know, you're resurrected, you're reborn, you're born again. Um, and it's this idea that by going through the Masonic ritual, you're symbolically dying and you're being reborn as a better person, a more enlightened person who can better affect, effectuate society. At least that's the, you know, underlying, you know, sort of spiritualism of it. Um, I mean, it's definitely Gnostic. Um, I mean, it, de it definitely echoes Gnostic doctrine. Um, some people say it's alchemical. Um, I think that's maybe a little bit of a stretch because, and I guess I could be probably splitting hairs here a little bit. Um, Alchemy is really more about a change from one thing to another. Um, I'm still Robert Sullivan. You know, the idea is that when you, when you go through the Masonic ritual, you're not changing really into something else. You're just changing. You're just becoming more enlightened. You're the same person. You're just more of an enlightened, more well-rounded figure person. Um, so that's sort of what, you know, what I would say. I mean, I can get, get into more in-depth of this. I'm just sort of scratching the surface with it. Mm -hmm. um, I wrote a, a very in-depth book about this called The Royal Arch of Enoch, where I get into um, a lot of the allegories, the mythology, the symbolism of the Blue Lodge, and how it relates to the high degrees, um, and especially this one high degree in particular known as the Royal Arch of Enoch. Yeah, a, a lot of that stuff you mentioned, you know, is is seen in the, you know, more conspiratorial community uh, as, you know, very, very dark, dark stuff. I mean, to be honest, that's, I'm, I'm, pretty ignorant on on freemasonry as a whole but um you know how, what's the response to people who who have that view uh, of freemasonry and its symbolism i mean there are a lot of like egyptian symbols and you know we have the, the all-seeing eye and this stuff is you know very much associated with like uh, satanism and 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 things like that yeah i mean it's pretty misguided in in, in my in my opinion um, I mean, the all-seeing eye is lifted from free, into Freemasonry from the works of a man named Jakob Berm, um, who was a Christian mystic. And, and the idea of the all-seeing eye means uh, coming to consciousness. 
It's the all-seeing eye. You're awakened. Um, there's really nothing nefarious about it. Um, I mean, the Egyptian, the Egyptian, a lot of the Egyptian mythology and these mystical rites, whether it be the rites of Eleusis, Mithras, um, I mean, these get incorporated into Christianity. Um, you know, again, the whole notion of the dying and resurrected sun man. Um, I mean, another, another thing that I, I find very, I mean, I don't know where this is coming from. Um, and I, I, I find it from time to time. Um, and, I, and I can tell by the host talking to me is this whole notion. And again, I just don't know where this is coming from. I mean, you know, this idea that Kabbalah um, is somehow evil or some sort of demonic doctrine or something. Um, whoever is saying that really doesn't know what they are talking about. Um, if, if you're familiar with the, the, um, the, the, the origins of Hebrew Kabbalah, Hebrew Kabbalah comes from the God of Abraham. Um, when Moses is on the you know, mountain uh, for 40 days and 40 nights, um, the idea was that God and Moses must be talking about something other than the Ten Commandments. And um, this is where Moses is, 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 is the God of Abraham gives Moses this idea of Kabbalah, um, which is the secret doctrine that is taught orally. Um, you know, this is the same God that Jesus professes to worship. So, I mean, anyone who comes along saying Kabbalah is evil, well, you're by default saying that uh, Jesus Christ is evil. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, that is completely misguided to me. And, and Kabbalistic tenets um, turn up in Christianity, um, believe it or not. Um, this comes from the Paul, St. Paul. This is um, the Pauline tradition of the celestial hierarchies, which run completely parallel with the Sephirah. Um, these, these, these spheres of spiritual purification um, that you find in, uh, with, with the Kabbalah. Um, in Christianity, they have them. They're called the celestial hierarchies. And it's these levels of spiritual purification that are guarded by the angels and the archangels. Again, this is nothing demonic at all. Um, I mean, this is completely accepted, by the way, by church scholars such as Thomas Aquinas, people like that. Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, the idea that this is some sort of malignant doctrine is just mind-boggling to me. Um, and again, it's, it's the same thing with a lot of this stuff with, with masonry. I mean, I guess, I, 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 think, I think the root cause of the problem is, I mean, this is, again, just my opinion of, there's no transparency with it. Um, right. when, when masonry, for example, when, you know, when, when the United States was founded, it's founded on the Masonic Lodge. I mean, and you will find Masonic hallmarks all over the place. I mean, the United this, this, the triple division of government the, between the executive legislature and judicial is, is a Masonic doctrine that has to do with the triple division of government in, in the Masonic Blue Lodge. Uh, you know, the separation of church and state um, that comes out of Anderson's constitutions of Freemasonry. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 the templates of the city designs, the logos on colleges, universities, it, these all come out of Freemasonry and it's just done. It's just used. It's not put to a vote. It's not announced or anything. And because, because there's no transparency, there's always this, this old sentiment. And again, this kind of blew was part of what blew up with the William Morgan affair that, you know, this, this is the secret guys who are operating behind the scenes. Um, and it's pretty much something that masonry has never recovered from. Um, I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, the country is, you know, when I say the country, I'm talking about the United States, it's founded on Masonic principles. And, um, you know, there was, I mean, there was this Masonic cabal working behind the scenes. It wasn't malignant, but it wasn't disclosed. It was run by, you, you may hear the term in your research, something known as the Colombian Illuminati. Um, and this is the sort of like the American version of the Illuminati. Um, this was run by a guy named DeWitt Clinton. Um, and he was a former mayor of New York City and a governor of New York State. And he is the guy who is really formulating and is the driving force behind the two-party system in the United States. 
he never, I mean, this was not done to be evil or malignant or conspiratorial, but the problem was it was done behind the scenes. And this all blew up in the 1820s. And masonry to this day has, like I said, when, when it happened, masonry survives it. it the, and one of the main reasons that Freemasonry survives this attack is because of the president of the United States, a man by the name of Andrew Jackson, who was a high degree Mason himself, former uh, Grand Master of the state of Tennessee. He doesn't cave into it. But since then, it's just, you know, you know, masonry has never been able to shrug off this conspiratorial aspect of it. And it's probably earned to a certain point, um, you know, I mean, because, you know, it did happen. Um, but like I said, I've been involved with it, you know, for years. I mean, it is. It's, it's a powerful organization. It's involved with the community. Loads of United States senators, congressmen, presidents have been Freemasonry, been Freemasons. Right. Um, but again, it never it never was meant to be evil or anything like mm-hmm. that. So would you agree then that there are maybe like problematic members within the organization then and it sort of like gets compartmentalized? And that's yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you but the, the problem with that is and I, I don't disagree with that is, mm-hmm. you know, you could do this with any walk of life out there. I mean, you could mm-hmm. do this, you know, with with, you know, Catholic priests with pedophilia. You know, does that mean every right. Catholic priest is a pedophile? No, of course not. I mean, you know, you look at Freemasonry. Um, I mean, w- one of the more controversial figures was J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, it's certainly his stance on civil rights was well known. Um, and, you know, you know, you can say whatever you want, but he he was a Freemason. So, yeah, I mean, you always have, you know, a shadow. I mean, everything casts a shadow no matter what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, on that aspect, yeah, I mean, you know, like I said, Freemasonry, no matter what, um, there will, and I'll put it to you like this, there will always be, I come on these shows such as yours and I tell what I say and I write the book and person wants to read the book and I, I tell everything I know, there will always be someone out there. Um, and believe me, I've read the comments who say, I will never believe a word of what this guy is saying uh, because he's a Freemason. And that's fine. There's nothing I can do about that. Yeah, I think people are going to have their preconceived notions. And, and you know, part of the reason I love doing this show is so I can kind of dispel any preconceived notions I have, you know, and I'll probably get like crap for even talking to you from some of the people that, that follow me, to be honest. And, sure. you know, I just want to let them know, you know, I, I talk to everybody and that's the whole point of the show is to like, you know, dis- dispel any myths or like get more information and then decide for myself. Right. Well, what, what, I, what I, I've been on shows like this before. And I, like I said, I don't force anyone to listen to me. I don't force anyone to buy my books. If you like what I'm saying, that's great. If you don't like what I'm saying, you can turn it off anytime you want. Absolutely. Yeah. People, you know, people have that, that choice for sure. Um, but as far as like, you know, when um, Freemason members maybe see these other problematic um, people within the organization, uh, what's their response uh, to that? Because, I mean, one thing I will say is like, I mean, you can't tell me like George Bush, who I assume is a Freemason, I'm not really sure, but like George Bush or like figures like that aren't up to no good. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah Bush is not a free, the Bush brother and or what I say would be Bush the father, son are not Freemasons. They remember okay. something known as skull and bones, right. um, which, which is not, um, it, which is Masonic like, but it's not part of Freemasonry. Skull and bones was founded as a reaction, believe it or not, to the anti-Masonic affair, or the William Morgan affair. That's what skull and bones was born out of. Um, but um, essentially um, Freemasonry is very, it's, it's a very egalitarian um, sort of democratic society. I mean, as long as you, well, I mean, the only thing Freemasonry will, will frown upon um, and, I mean, you know, and, and come down upon and exp- is criminal activity. 
Um, I mean, anything that's like a crime of moral turpitude or criminal activity, I mean, you know, they'll, they'll expel you, they'll throw you out for that. I mean, but like, you know, writing a controversial book or something like that, um, you know, I mean, as long as, you know, that that's, you know, you know, it's, we build things, Freemasons build things and some are more controversial than others. Gotcha. Yeah, sounds fair enough. Um, I have been reading a lot about Skull and Bones and they, they do seem like vastly different. Um, I, I have, uh, is it Anthony Sutton's book? Yeah, I don't know if you've I think read I have that. that one too. Yeah, what do you what do you make of that book? Yeah, the, well, well, Skull and Bones is is a Masonic like organization that was founded um, um, by uh, I, I believe it was Alfonso Taft was one of the founding muscles. William Huntington Russell, I believe, was another one, and it was founded because Masonry was on decline, and they wanted to get into this idea of having secret orders again, and that's what Skull and Bones was born out of was the anti Masonic affair of the eighteen twenties. I'll just I'll just point this out real quick. Um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Cast of Amontillado is a metaphor for the anti-Masonic affair, where Fortunato gets bricked up. Fortunato is a stand-in for William Morgan. If you remember the story, Fortunato gets bricked up at the end, is never seen again by the Mason's trowel. Um, so when you, if you're reading Edgar Allan Poe's uh, Cast of Amontillado, that's an allegory for the anti-Masonic affair and the disappearance of William Morgan. Um, but no, Skull and Bones, you know, when you're dealing with, it's, it's interesting because when you're dealing with a lot of the um, you know, like the uh, secret service and the spying networks and things like that, they all seem to have a tie to secret societies. I mean, MI5, MI6, you know, seem to have a lot of, you know, this John D. Rosicrucian flair to it. Uh, the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover was a Freemason. Uh, FDR was a Freemason. Skull and Bones, of course, you could argue created the CIA. Um, so, you know, for whatever reason, you have these secret societies that always seem to get tied up with the uh, secret, you know, with these uh, espionage, or, you know, organizations. I'm not sure why that is. But, um, yeah, I mean, Skull and Bones is, is a definitely a Masonic-like organization. It is not in any way, shape, or form tied to Masonry proper. Um, but it's a, a fraternal organization at Yale University. And a hell of a lot of powerful people have gone through it. And, again, when you have that happening, raises eyebrows, no doubt about it. Yes. Can you tell me specifically about their their symbol? I'm very interested in the skull and bones uh, symbolism because we do see it throughout history. I think I think I read it maybe started with the Templars. And then, I mean, you even see it on like the Nazi SS hats. What's your what's your uh, perception of that? Right. Well, the, the, the skull and crossbones, I mean, that's that symbol is goes way, way back. Uh, my understanding of it is the original title of skull and bones was the order of death. So, I mean, of course, the death heads and the skull and bones is a symbol of death. The 322, the, 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 their explanation for it is it has to, it's a year and it has to do with this goddess, I believe, named the Logia um, off the top of my head. Uh, I'd have to go look this up, but it has to do with the, this because that's what the skull and bones. I think once you become a member, I think that's what you're known as a knight of Eulogia, I, I want to say. And it has to do with this return of eulogia to Yale University. And again, I believe it has something to do with enlightenment and wisdom, something to that effect. I, I'm not a member of Skull and Bones. I didn't go to Yale University. So my knowledge of it is probably what yours is, just reading books about it. Right. Um, I, I, there was a uh, neat, there was a great little homage to Skull and Bones, which in the movie, um, oh, which one was it? It was the one with Jennifer Lawrence, uh, where she played the spy, Red Sparrow. Okay. Um, there was a, a thing in, in that movie, if you paid attention to it, which was all about the CIA and espionage. She was, she was supposed to meet somebody on March 22nd, 322. 
I mean, that's an obvious allusion to uh, 322 Skull and Bones, which of course founded the uh, CIA. Mm, very interesting. Um, so, okay, well, that leads me into to the yeah the film aspect of of what you do. You've written a, a number of books on this, and and it's really interesting to me. I'm actually an actor by trade, so I've been on film sets my entire life, and so I I love hearing about this stuff. Um, how did you, uh, you know, start with the with the film symbolism stuff? What what led you into that? Right. It was um, for me one of the one of the earliest movies that got me into this was Star Wars, and, and this was Episode Four. And of course, I was born in 1971, so I grew up on Star Wars. And it was somewhere in high school that I learned that this this movie was sort of a a, a dramatization of this book by a guy named Joseph Campbell called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And the book, the book is nonfiction, but it's a, it's a study of comparative mythology where he gets into a lot of these mythologies from the ancient world and how they all seem to have these sort of universal elements in them. And he goes and he analyzes them, he points them out. And sure enough, you know, Star Wars incorporates, you know, in episode five and six as well, incorporates a lot of these elements. Um, I mean, it's not by happenstance. Um, George Lucas admits to this. In fact, in the copy of the book I have sitting right next to me of A Hero with a Thousand Faces, there's a testimonial by Lucas on the dust jacket. So this isn't me making something up or anything like that. But that kind of got me interested in all this. And I thought, oh, well, you know, you know, this is basically modern day mythology, which, which is what it is, which is what Star Wars is. And then, of course, you look at movies like The Lord of the Rings, The Matrix, uh, Harry Potter. Um, they incorporate these exact same elements. Um, it's, it's almost a retelling. Um, I mean, the thing is so universal. I, I did in Cinema Symbolism 3. Uh, I won't get into it right now. But I mean, these elements, in, in some form or fashion, at least a couple of them, pretty much turn up in every movie out there. Um, so that was sort of my first little you know, introduction to this. Um, and then it really was in, in the late 90s and, and the early 2000s with uh, the advent of movies or the release of movies like The Matrix, uh, which was really incorporated a lot of Gnostic theology. Um, and then the one that was a really uh, an eye-opener for me was the first National Treasure movie. I believe this was 2004 with Nicolas Cage. Um, and a lot of people aren't aware of this. And this was something I took on in the Royal Arch of Enoch book. Um, and this was really astounding to me is the, the, the movie, this is the first National Treasure, is literally a retelling, a cinematic version of this high degree ritual in Freemasonry called the Royal Arch of Enoch. It's the 13th in the Scottish Rite, excuse me, the seventh in the York Rite. Um, if you're familiar with the ritual, um, the ritual is about the rediscovery, the, the discovery of the Masonic Templar treasure in the subterranean treasure vault in the Holy Land. Uh, well, what's national treasure about? Well, it's about the rediscovery or the discovery of this Masonic Templar treasure in a subterranean vault uh, beneath the Holy Ground, uh, beneath the Holy Land. And they said it in New York City, um, which is a clear homage to DeWitt Clinton, um, who I already mentioned. Um, very, very important, high-ranking Royal, Royal Archmason. So, um, you know, when I saw that, I mean, this was really sort of like the tip-offs for me. Um, and what happened was, the way, the way this played out for me at any rate, was when I was doing Royal Arch of Enoch, which was my first book, I wanted to end that book on in the modern day. I wanted to bring, you know, end it in modernity. Um, you know, the book was just all about all this ancient philosophies and Masonic ritual and Masonic histories. I thought I wanted to end this in the modern day. So I thought, okay, let me get into some movies that have Masonic under undertones to them, you know, such as the National Treasure movie, the second National Treasure movie, The Da Vinci Code has this. Um, 
being there with Peter Sellers uh, is another one. So I, I, I wrapped up Royal Arch talking about Masonic cinema. Um, and after that, I th it was just such an interesting study for me. And there were so many other movies that I wanted to take on that I knew had this, you know, occult, you know, themes in them that I released, uh, you know, three books on it, Cinema Symbolism 1, 2, and 3. And it was really just the idea of, um, you know, one, you know, you just can't, you know, you can't incorporate every movie, you know, the, into a movie. So I thought, well, let me just do a slate of movies in one and then I'll continue it with two and then I'll continue it with three. And, you know, even right now I'm outlining part four. Um, so, you know, that was sort of what, what jumpstarted me with the uh, whole movie analysis with, you know, the occult, things like that. I, I watched some interviews uh, with you and you went into detail on some of the movies and it was really fascinating, uh, especially as it related to, to 9-11. And I don't know how you feel about like the more prophetic aspect uh, of, of film symbolism. You seem maybe skeptical about it. Um, but uh, I wondered if you could go into into some of that. And I did send you a video ahead of time, which was super like prophetic and and conspiratorial on 9-11 and back to the future right I, i'm not i'm not skeptical on it I, what what i mean i, I don't disagree the, the, the back to the future stuff i don't i've seen that video before that's very dated um okay. and i just don't buy that 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 to me is the idea of you know if you stand on your head in the corner spinning nickels you can see this, this and the other i mean <laughs> that, you know back to that that movie is just so far removed from 9-11 now granted when you get up to 9-11 you, you get, get get up close to the event you do start seeing, you know, hallmarkers of, you know, heralds of this thing. That's irrefutable. I do not dispute that. And I do not dispute they're in film. I mean, it's clearly within the first Matrix movie, you have the whole 9-11-01. I mean, the whole date there with when Neo's passport expires, uh, The Patriot with Mel Gibson, um, you know, where, uh, you know, which was 2000, where he sits in the chair, which weighs nine pounds, 11 ounces, and it comes crashing down. Fight Club. Uh, where, you know, the destruction of the buildings at the end, where, you know, Tyler talks about it being ground zero and uh, the destruction of the sphere, you know, the corporate art, which resembled the sphere outside of the World Trade Center, you know, plaza. Um, the uh, Simpsons episode, which was, I think, 1997. Um, the uh, Big Lebowski, which was 1998, with uh, which has a 9-11 reference in it, and then goes to George Bush. And of course, it was it's Bush 41, but of course, his son was president at the time. Um, that was 98. Um, you know, the, the lone gunman episode, which was, I think, oh, one of March, where the terrorists hijacked the plane in a false flag and fly it into the World Trade Center. So I don't dispute that it's there. I mean, in fact, I think it's fascinating. Um, what I try to reconcile is how is it getting in there? Um, yeah. you, you know, you know, how is this how is these how is this getting being turned up in film? Um, I, I'm not in the camp of that. There are Hollywood producers sitting around saying, oh, we know 9-11 is going to happen. Let's put these little clues um, into movies. Um, I mean, that seems to me to be somewhat far-fetched. On, on, on the other hand, we have to account for it because it's clearly there. Um, yeah. and, and the way, the way I, I, I believe it's happening, and this is just me speaking, um, I believe it's supernatural. And when I say it's supernatural, I believe it is a product of, of, of divine or, or let's say ethereal energies uh, that are manifesting as part of the creative process. Um, I'm not the first person to talk about this. Um, Plato, the philosopher, talked about this. You'll find this in the uh, treatise of the Hermetica, um, talks about this. The whole idea of, of the creative process is somehow a divine endeavor. And, you know, Carl Jung talked about this with the collective unconscious. What I postulate and what I theorize is if we have these 
archetypal imagery or images that are universal embedded in all of us could have somehow the creative process be working in reverse. And that is putting these images into film that are prophetic, not only inherited, but prophetic. That's my theory on it. Um, and like I said, it definitely has a supernatural bent to it. Um, I'm not of the camp that, you know, there's, like I said, there's some sort of satanic cabal in Hollywood sitting around saying, you know, well, let's put this imagery in here for some unknown reason or anything that seems to be far fetched to me. But on the other hand, you know, this imagery, this things like with the nine 11, and it's not only nine 11, um, you know, you know, the, the, um, the one movie, uh, the China syndrome was released two mi- two weeks before three mile Island. I- I'm not saying this to get political or anything, but there's a lot of um, prophecy related to Donald Trump. And like I said, I'm not getting political, you know, whatever you feel about Trump is your own opinion, but I'm just saying there is, imagery in film and commercials that seem to predict Trump's presidency. Um, the nine 11 stuff is irrefutable. Um, yeah, so yeah. to me, it's, um, you know, you know, it's, it's there and it's, how do you account for it? And like I said, what I theorize is that it's a product of this idea of the collective unconscious, the idea of the creative art that somehow this is turning cinema celluloid into some sort of prophetic vision. That's how I explain it. That's a very interesting take on it. Um, I mean, who knows? It very well could be the case. I can't say, you know, I've been on a set working with, um, you know, any director and and, um, hearing them, you know, say anything related to, you know, let's let's get get this in a way that will that will uh, associate with that sort of thing. You know what I mean? I but but then again, you know, I'm not in the 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 very the meetings, you know, so who knows? Uh, but I think maybe uh, aside from that, it could be, I mean, do you think it could be just the, the writing process? I mean, we do have like things like, what is it? Is it Operation Mockingbird where the CIA was in control of like the script writing of, of films? I mean, they have had a hand in, in, in the writing of films. So maybe it's just passed down and these people are, you know, like creating this stuff based on what, what is written and, you know, it somehow all comes together. Right. Well, let me say this also. Um, what, I'm, what, what, I, what I just said was, let me predicate that on, there are symbols and, and, and hidden themes in movies that are intentional. Mm-hmm. I mean, that are definitely there without question. Um, you know, whether you're talking about the works of Stanley Kubrick or movies like Black Swan or Cruella or Halloween. Uh, I just watched the new Halloween Kills movie, which has a, a, couple, a lot of stuff going on in it. There are occult, you know, hidden undercurrents that are placed there intentionally. Um, I'm talking about like where the movie seems to be prophetic. That being said, no, I mean, there are definitely, like I said, with the National Treasure movie, that movie is a Masonic ritual. And I do not dispute, um, you know, that that's not an intentional aspect of that film. I mean, that is clearly being done on purpose. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, I, I get into this with the CIA. I, I mean, you know, I mean, the the whole, um, you know, I, I mean, I, the, the government agencies being involved with Hollywood is nothing new. Um, Believe it or not, Walt Disney was a spy for J. Edgar Hoover. Many people may not be aware of that. Uh, The FBI critiqued the X-Files scripts. Um, You know, this goes way, way back. Um, The first couple of the Basil Rathbone, uh, Nigel Bruce, Sherlock Holmes movies were war propaganda. Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy with Jimmy Cagney was more war propaganda. Uh, It was anti, you know, know, anti-Axis war propaganda. It's exactly what it was. Same thing with a couple of those early Sherlock Holmes movies. Uh, the Exorcist has the CIA's fingerprints all over it, um, as a as a uh, sort of uh, not I don't I hate the word mind control, 
but as sort of a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? As, as sort of a, um, I, I talk about it in Cinema Symbolism 3, as sort of a vehicle to transfer, it, 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 the, the, the exorcist uh, it's basically snuffs out the radicalism of the 1960s. Um, if you watch that movie symbolically, and Blatty worked for the CIA, um, so you'll find these elements in, in, in the book as well. But the whole, the whole notion of that, that movie is basically a CIA mind, uh, I hate the word mind control, but I'm going to use it, to basically <laughs> snuff out the radicalism of, of the 1960s, basically to get people to go live in the suburbs. I, I've been told that Karen Carpenter um, was a CIA operative, and that her music is designed to do that same thing, is to, do, to, to quell radicalism. Um, and then she was actually killed prematurely by the CIA. Um, again, let me say this to you. This goes way, way, way back. Um, mm-hmm. Christopher Marlowe, um, the English poet, was an agent of the Jesuits. I mean, all his plays are designed to attack Queen Elizabeth. Um, is it no wonder that he was slaughtered by Elizabethan agents in a bar at the age of 29 or whatever he was? I mean, Faustus is an attack on John Dee. Tamburlaine is an attack on Queen Elizabeth herself. And the Jew of Malta is an attack on her doctor, Rodrigo Lopez, who wound up being hung at Tyburn because of that play. So the idea of, of, of secret orders and, and government agencies using media and pop culture to sway the message is nothing new. So yeah, I mean, when you're dealing with um, Hollywood, um, you know, again, you always have to, you know, take into effect the conspiratorial world. And like I said, the stuff with 9-11, my, my take on it is that it seems to be more supernatural. On that note, there is without question um, symbolism and themes and undercurrents that are put into movies that are definitely a cult and they're definitely there um, on purpose. I mean, at, at, at the, you know, at the hand of the filmmakers. You've never come across anything to suggest that, there, you know, there's any kind of Satanism going on in, in Hollywood? Because I will admit they seem they do seem a little obsessed with it. Right. I mean, I, I, I mean, I don't know if I would go so far as to use the word Satanism. I mean, they mm. there is Hollywood movies that are very bleak and dark um, that, you know, I mean, but, you know, I mean, for every one of those, I mean, there's a, you know, Passion of the Christ and the Ten Commandments. I mean, you know. There are some movies that I would definitely describe as sort of like evil in the celluloid. I, I talk about this in my books. I mean, The Exorcist would be one. Uh, the Black Cat with Karloff and Lugosi. That is a very dark movie, um, especially for the time that it was released. I believe it was the early 30s. Um, the the character, the Karloff character in that, Helmar Perlzig, is a Crowley analog. Um, and, and that is a very dark film. I mean, that deals with incest, uh, necrophilia, things like that. Um, the movie Midsommar with Ari Aster. That's a very dark film. Oh yeah. Um, and I, and I, I found something very unique going on in that um, was not only was it dark, but if you pay attention to that movie very carefully, the number nine um, it prevails in that movie. Uh, it, it pervades that entire movie, that number nine. And there's two reasons for that. Um, the one, one is the number nine is, is, is very prevalent in Norse mythology. Uh, I'm not going to get into a laundry list here, but, the, the number nine, it turns up a lot in the movie. When you, when you watch Midsommar again, um, pay attention. The number nine is all over the place and it has to do with Norse mythology. But I also found it interesting that his first movie, Hereditary, uh, which was about a demon named Payman um, coming out of the lesser key of Solomon. Uh, Payman is actually the ninth demon in that book. And I just, I just couldn't help but think to myself, God, by using the number nine, is he somehow transferring the demonism of, of pay, Payman into that movie? Because that movie sure is dark. Uh, both of them are. Yeah. And um, I just I just felt like I was watching when I watched Midsommar, I just really got that like, you know, really sort of dark underlying theme of this movie is really evil. Um, yeah. And, you know, it, it's just really, you know, 
designed to convey the sort of evil theme, um, just evil. You know, it's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> and I definitely think it's, it's intentional. Um, very dark film. My, my girlfriend made me watch that maybe last year, and I've hated her ever since. Uh, <laughs> it was it was awful, and I, I'm not really you know I like thrillers, but I'm not really into like gory type of stuff. And oh man, I just found that brutal. Have you, and have like, you seen her? Have you seen Hereditary yet? I've heard of it, but I don't think I ever saw it. Well, that that's just as dark. Um, that's just as bad as Midsommar. And if you had trouble with Midsommar, you're probably going to have trouble with Hereditary because that's just as bleak. <laughs> Oh, God. Yeah, I think I'll probably stay away from that one. Um, but on, along the same lines, I have to ask you about um, Eyes Wide Shut. I find that film fascinating. Is there anything you can uh, enlighten us as far as that film? Absolutely. Kubrick, Kubrick is a grandmaster. Um, he's definitely one of the grandmasters of using occult symbolism. Look no further than The Shining. Um, which has a lot of repetition in it, but you asked me about Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, yeah, I mean, this has been somewhat fleshed out. Kubrick is likely the guy who did film the, the moon landing uh, footage. Um, there's a smoking gun on that that many people aren't aware of, which has to do with the movie that came out before The Shining called Barry Lyndon, um, which was this movie about the Napoleonic Wars. A lot of people aren't aware of this. I'm just getting into this very briefly. It is interesting. Um, Kubrick wanted to film the movie with can you lit by candles, and you couldn't do it. They, they don't work well in, in scenes. You, you have to always have an external lighting. Um, NASA had figured out a way to do it. And believe it or not, Barry Lyndon was filmed with NASA technology. I mean, it begs the question, how did uh, Kubrick, you know, get access to NASA cameras, NASA technology? And the answer, the question kind of answers itself, is that he probably filmed the, the moon footage for him. Eyes Wide Shut, his swan song. Um, I mean, this is sort of what you would call, you know, your Illuminati film. Um, the one thing, I mean, Kubrick is really good with, with symbolism. And the one thing that he does, if you watch, um, if you watch uh, Eyes Wide Shut, is he presents two levels of evil. Um, one is the one that kind of is in mundane, mundane reality, which is he introduces drug abuse, pedophilia, child sex trafficking, alcoholism, you know, drug use. And he introduces them through the Tom Cruise character, but he always surrounds them with Christmas lights. Um, when you watch Eyes Wide Shut, the Christmas lights in that film are, are impossible to ignore. And they're not the little subtle white ones. It's the big, you know, red, orange, green, gaudy Christmas lights. And they're in all the scenes. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you pay attention, when Tom Cruise finally gets to the, uh, you know, mansion, this is where the Illuminati is conducting their sex magic ritual. There's no Christmas lights. What Kubrick is trying to tell you is this is the real evil. I mean, if you think the stuff I've shown you so far is bad, that, that's got nothing on these people. I mean, of course, this is where he's, you know, introduced to the, you know, Illuminati doing the sex magic ritual. I mean, if you watch it carefully, you got the red cloak character when he creates the magic circle, which is a mnemonic, by the way, Kubrick loves repetition in all his movies. Um, the, the shining is the movie that he does it the most in, but if you pay attention, he, he, he always, he loves repeating things. He's very subtle about it. Um, you have the Red Cloak character creating the magic circle uh, counterclockwise. That's Vittershins. That's black magic. And then the little girl at the end, when she's in the uh, FAO Schwartz, the game there is the magic circle. Um, so Kubrick loves uh, repeating stuff. And I'll give you another example of this is in uh, Full Metal Jacket. Uh, when the Paris Island sequence is referenced, uh, the drill sergeant Hartman, I'm not going to say what he says because I'll keep it clean, 
he references. Oh, it's fine. Mickey. You can if you want. No, well, he says, he says, he says, what, what is this Mickey Mouse shit going on inside? You know, this was what he's in the head at the end. Yeah. And then, of course, if you remember the end of the movie, this is the Vietnam sequence. They ended seeing the Mickey Mouse theme song. So, again, that's Kubrick repeating once again. Kubrick loves repetition. Um, and again, if, if you pay attention to The Shining, that's all it is. It's just he repeats one thing after another. But um, Eyes Wide Shut, yeah, I mean, it's a great film. I, I like it, but if I have a cr- criticism, it's not a criticism, but the one thing I do find, you know, kind of when I, when I watch it is, for me personally, when I watch Eyes Wide Shut, I've always found the movie to be sort of dull and slow moving. And I yeah. think that's done on purpose. And I think Kubrick is doing that on purpose because I, th- I think what he's trying to tell the viewer is don't watch this movie on the surface. Try to watch this movie symbolically because if you watch it symbolically, it's much more interesting. Um, that's my take on it. But yeah, I mean, um, I, there's there's great references in, in Eyes Wide Shut to the Illuminati, of course, and the Magic Circle. Um, and it's a movie that I have dissected. Um, it was in Cinema Symbolism 2 was when I first took on um, Eyes Wide Shut. An interesting little side note to that, it's the second time in two years that uh, Tom Cruise wore a mask of himself. Um, the first was Eyes Wide Shut in 1999, and then two years later in Vanilla Sky, he does it again. Kind of strange. Yeah, well, he's an interesting guy. We, could, I mean, we could go into that too. Yeah, Mr. Scientology. Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear your opinions on Scientology. But um, uh, before I forget, uh, oh, what was I going to ask? Now I, I'm, I went blank. Um, oh yeah, did you know that did they play a Romanian prayer backwards uh, during the? that scene there's the the the, the cult scene or whatever they, there's like a romanian prayer uh playing backwards and i i grew up speaking romanian so i thought that was the, uh, fascinating to me i i i do know that that they're playing the backwards i forget the actual what it is but I, you're absolutely correct anytime you're dealing with something like that and they're playing back, speaking backwards i mean the first thing that comes to your head is the exorcist i mean and again I, th- I think that's one of those occult mnemonics um, that's one of the things these guys love to toy around with are these mnemonics that they put in their movies that are designed to draw in other movies. Um, that's one of them. I mean, that's obviously designed to conjure the exorcist. If you've seen the, the one that they, they just did, um, and I don't know if you've seen it or not, it was the movie. I just watched it. it I've watched it a couple of times. It just came out on Blu-ray last week was Halloween Kills, um, which I very much liked. If you watch that movie, and I guess I'll have to give away, away a bit of a spoiler here. The end, the end movie, the end of that movie with that, where he, where, where Michael Myers knifes Karen, which is Judy Greer, that is a complete reinvention of the sh- psycho scene, the shower scene uh, mm-hmm. from Psycho, with, without question. And then when Michael Myers is staring out the window at the very end, pay attention to his mask because it has the skull, uh, the, the um, subliminal of the skull superimposed very subtly over the white mask. And that's done, um, that's lifted again from Psycho where the end of the movie, where Norman Bates is looking at the camera and you see the mother's skull superimpose over his. I thought that was very well done. Do these things just jump out to you at this point or do you have to really sit there and watch? <laughs> um, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very fair question. Um, usually, for me personally, I, I, a lot of times when I watch a movie for the first time, I'll just say this to you. When I watch a movie, I'm much more a fan of the home experience. I have a very large, you know, flat screen. I like the Blu-ray. I very seldom go to the movies anymore. It has nothing to do with COVID. Um, yeah. I just hadn't been to the movies forever. Um, the, the, the Blu-rays come out very soon after the movie's theatrical release. It wasn't like that growing up in the 80s and 90s. Um, I don't know how old you are. In the age of video, 
um, when a movie came out in the theater, it was like eight, nine months later before you got to see it on the VHS tape. This isn't yeah. the case anymore. The, the Blu-rays come out like three months later. So I just usually wait for the Blu-ray. I usually watch the movie for the first time just for entertainment value. I mean, um, you know, just to, just to take in the movie. But inevitably, you know, I, I may pick up on something or see something that kind of alerts me. Uh, it's usually on the second, third viewing that I, I start to maybe, you know, watch it with the analytical eye, um, things like that. Uh, and, you know, again, for me, it's, it's that I can pick up on the main, a lot of the movies have a general theme. And if I can identify that, that helps me dissect it. Um, so some are, some, some, you know, are mishmashes, some draw from this and do this and do that. Um, you know, you know, ha- Halloween, uh, I don't know if you've seen the 18, the, the new ones, um, there, there's a lot of role reversal going on in that. Um, and when you identify that, it becomes much more easier to, to spot what the movie makers are going for. Um, so, you know, you know, for me, my methodology is I, I usually have to have the movie on Blu-ray or DVD so I can jump around and it takes me more than one viewing to watch it. Um, but, you know, like I said, you know, it, it's, it's something I love doing. It's a fascinating study and there's three books so far and there's a fourth on the way. Awesome. I'm going to definitely have to pick those up. And uh, before I get too far away from it, um, I have sure. to ask, is there... Um, did did you pick up any like symbolism as far as the moon landing in The Shining? Because you did mention that. Well, right. Well, that that that's a that's a a popular conspiracy theory. This is apparently where Kubrick, you know, tip tips it off, you know, tips off people with Danny with the Apollo Eleven sweat sweater, and you know, stands up and then goes to room two three seven, and of course the moon, the distance from the moon from the Earth in the late seventies was two hundred thirty seven thousand miles. So you know, it's it's Danny with the Apollo Eleven going to the moon. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it could it could very well be. I mean, like I said, the uh, the idea that um, the government watched Strange Love at two thousand one, um, the theory is that they actually could have gone to the moon, and it, they just had to have Kubrick, uh, you know, film it. You know, they couldn't film on the moon, so they actually went, but the the footage was filmed here on Earth in a studio. I mean, it's not far fetched. Um, you know, and like I said, the the thing that is strange is with uh, Barry Lyndon, um, where Kubrick is actually using NASA technology to film that movie. I mean, you know, you know, NASA technology lenses are not just, you know, are not open to the general public. Um, so that, you know, Kubrick must have had an insider there. And it's likely because of, um, you know, you know, he filmed the moon landing. And then, of course, you had the scene in The Shining uh, with Danny and the, uh, you know, Apollo 11 sweatshirt with, um, you know, with with The Shining, though. And this is something I take on in Cinema Symbolism, too. Um, that movie is nothing but repetition. He repeats everything you know he repeats doubles twice and what he's doing that for is to convey this idea that the uh overlook is an ouroboros that it's forever biting its tail there's just this sort of vicious reincarnation cycle um if you're interested in that by all means check out symbol cs2 um that's i get into all the repetition in the shining absolutely there's a lot of a lot of things with the with the whole moon landing that doesn't make sense so i i mean that is a good point that they, they could have gone and just filmed it. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, they're basically going to the moon in a tin can, it seems like. And they're, you know, they're, they're getting through a radiation belt um, somehow. There's no real explanation for certain things. So that's one, that's one you know, conspiracy theory that uh, is, is interesting to me. Yeah, I, um, I, don't, I never get into whether they actually went or not. That's not really my bailiwick. They could have gone. The, the, the theory is that they, they, the, the underlying theory is whether they went or not, I don't know. But the theory is that if they went, whether they went or not, they needed to film the footage here on Earth and they hired mm-hmm. Kubrick to do it. And that that's plausible. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I want to ask you about one more movie, and I could ask you about so many, but um, Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite. Um, is, is that inherently symbolic? It has to be, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, absolutely. Well, I mean, you look at Tolkien. I mean, you got a lot going on in those things. Um, I mean, clearly, when you look at what Tolkien was living through, I mean, you know, with, with you know, after World War One and, and, and basically, you know, with World War Two, I mean, you know, I mean, he was living in England at Oxford. I mean, clearly, I mean, well, well, let's just start with the basics. Um, You know, with Lord of the Rings, you're dealing inherently with the Campbell monomyth. I mean, you know, where clearly Frodo is the sort of solar hero. Um, You have the Hermes Trismegistus wizard figure, uh, which is Gandalf. Of course, he is Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars, and he's Albus Dumbledore in Harry Potter. They all look alike. It's the old gray beard. I mean, and you have this idea of this sort of numinous quest uh, to defeat a dark evil overlord. Um, it's this sort of solar journey to conquer evil. I mean, it's, it's almost, you know, you know, like the, 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 the heroes are these Christ-like figures almost. Mm-hmm. In some aspects, they're very, you know, like a Gnostic Christ. Um, so you have the, you know, elements, you know, the call of adventure, the supernatural aid, the meeting with the goddess, you know, the apotheosis, apotheosis elements, the road of trials. These are all in um, the Lord of the Rings uh, without question. Um, I mean, but then you get into some of the the subtle um, symbolism. I mean, clearly, um, the 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 Sauron, you know, character um, or Saruman, excuse me, is yeah, clearly yeah. sort of the Karl Marx, you know, I want to say of Middle Earth, where he's <laughs> trying to, you know, you know, orcs of all lands unite, who are kind of a proletariat, um, and you know, he's trying to overthrow, you know, the bourgeoisie, you know, which are like the elves and the men. So, you know, I mean, you know. Tolkien, Tolkien lived right in this time frame, um, you know, post, you know, post 19th century. So, you know, this whole idea of class warfare, Marxism, socialism. Um, I mean, you know, you have the whole idea with industrialization, treading on, you know, nature. I mean, you see that with Soromon, um, you know, where he's trying to, you know, he basically turns, uh, you know, Isengard into a blast furnace, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Um, so, so when we have that going on. I, I think this may have been subconscious for Tolkien, but I always thought that it was interesting that he named the villain Sauron, um, who's Lord of the, I mean, Sauron is the Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, you know, what is the Lord of the Rings? I mean, you know, Saturn, you know, the Lord of death, you know, right. Sauron, Saturn. I always thought that was kind of a unique little nexus there. Probably unconscious. He may not have been aware of that. Um, gloomy Saturn, you know, associates with death and, and, and darkness, um, you know, and you have, you know, which is, of course, the ring planet, you know, who's the Lord of the Rings, Sauron, Saturn. I always thought that was a neat little, uh, you know, you know, homage there. So, yeah, I mean, no, I love the uh, Lord of the Rings. I, I like the uh, um, I like the uh, Peter Jackson films. I, I, I yeah, yeah I, I was old enough to remember the Ralph Bashke uh, animated cartoons. I always liked those. I always thought The Hobbit was better. I always thought the Lord of the Rings was a little he, they couldn't go all in. Um, so they kind of cut and pasted with the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Ralph Bashke ones. But the Hobbit with, with, with that was really good. Um, that was probably the best Hobbit one until, until Jackson did the movies. So, no, I, I take on um, – I've analyzed the Lord of the Rings. That was something I did in the first movie book. And, again, it was uh, – you know, again, you're, you're, something like that, inevitably you start with the Campbell monomyth. Okay. So just to um... – I guess wrap things up. Uh, you did mention COVID, and this this podcast is very uh, skeptical of, <laughs> I guess to put it, to put it uh, mildly, of of what's going on in the world right now. And uh, I wanted to know what your general opinion was of of everything that's that's happening right now. 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I, it, it, for me personally, it, I don't, I mean, I, I, it's, it strikes me, I don't know, if, it, it strikes me this came from a lab. I don't think it came from a wet market. This seems like it got out of a lab in China. Um, mm. Whether it was intentionally released or released accidentally, your guess is as good as mine. Um, I, you know, I, I have a little trouble with the conspiracy on this because it strikes me somewhat as, as like duplicitous and it doesn't add up to me. I guess if, if the, I guess, I mean, just, this is just my take on it. Um, if the global elitists, you know, wanted to kill humankind, well, they just release a, a virus and not release the um, antidote and just kind of keep it to themselves and just, you know, I mean, you could just do that. Um, this is actually seen in a, in a cartoon. It was funny. I was just on another show talking about this. If you watch um, Aeon Flux, uh, the very pilot episode, this is what that delves with is people have a virus and the one guy's keeping it to himself. I believe his name is Trevor Goodhead. Um, and he has, the, he has the antidote, but he's not giving out. He does eventually, but not at the beginning. Um, I got the vaccine. I mean, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you. I mean, I, I got the pub double shot of the Pfizer and I got the booster. Um, my motivation for that was um, I've been getting a flu shot for 25 years, so I really wasn't afraid of it. Um, I, I will tell a brief story for this. Uh, I mean, it's funny, this is synchronicity, because it was actually 29 years ago at this very time, it was uh, January 18th, 19th, 20th, um, I was over in England, and I caught the flu. I had a really bad case of it, and it laid me out for um, about five days. I mean, I was 21 years old. I was really sick, really bedridden. Um, I got over it, of course. I mean, I got better, but... Um, it was after that, um, when I returned back to the States, it was maybe a year or two later, my mother and father said to me, we're getting our flu shots. Do you want to, do you want to get one? And I remembered back how sick I was. And I said, yeah, I'll get one. So I've been getting the flu shot for 25, 25, six years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had, never had any problem with it. So when I got, I got the co I got the two COVID ones and I didn't have any problem with it. And I got the booster. I didn't have any problem with it. Um, after I got the second COVID shot with Pfizer, I did have a little of the reaction to it where I had a little temperature, the achy joint, stuff like that. And I had that again with the booster, but it only lasted the, the day. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm one of those people where I'm not going to tell people to get vaccinated. I believe it's your choice. Um, if you want to get it, get it. I mean, I can give you, give you my experience. If you don't want to get it, that's up to you. I'm not going to look down on you or say, you know, or speak negatively of you or that. I mean, it's your decision. I chose to get it. If you don't want to get it, that's up to you. Um, so, you know, that's kind of my take on COVID. I mean, I think it's, it's you know, I, I don't I don't like to see it being used to, to force people. And, you know, I mean, I heard one guy say, well, if you don't have your vaccine, if you're, if you're unvaccinated, we're not going to treat you. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, you know, it's like saying, well, if you smoke cigarettes and you get lung cancer, we're not going to treat you. I mean, it doesn't work that way. Right. Um, so, you know, you know, I mean, that's just my take on it, whether it was intentionally released or anything. But but I guess I'll just wrap up by saying this. Where I have trouble with the conspiracy with it is. It would strike me that if, if you wanted to kill people, you could release a virus and just not release the antidote. It doesn't kind of make sense that, okay, well, we're going to have the vaccine, you know, the, the, the vaccine is some sort of, you know, if you want to kill people, then why release the vaccine? Um, that, that kind of just doesn't really add up to me. Uh, that's just my opinion. though. So I feel compelled then to tell you a little bit about my, my journey. Um, and I think we can agree on that, you know, nobody should push anything on anyone. And I feel like if somebody really wants to take the, the vaccine, that's, that's up to them. It's their body. You know what I mean? Um, I was a person who, um, I don't know if I had a really strong opinion on vaccines. I didn't really like getting them. I, I, I didn't feel the need to get them, but I wasn't like, 
you know, anti-vaccine. Um, and then I, you know, I started studying uh, terrain theory, uh, which is the opposite of what germ theory is. And, uh, you know, I discovered this whole new paradigm that kind of got lost in history, you know, with like Bechamp. And I don't know if you've ever delved into any of that, but may- maybe you will after this, because you strike me as a kind of guy who, who would do that. Um, but um, so the idea with terrain theory is that your body is, um, you know, more like an ecosystem, it's a self-healing ecosystem. And basically when we have the flu and things like cold, we are just, uh, we are overburdened with toxins and the flu is basically like your body detoxing and releasing those toxins through, you know, mucus and, you know, the diarrhea, like all these things are way that your, your body is healing itself and going back to homeostasis. And then I started studying the, you know, the virology of this whole thing. And, you know, I started off with like, okay, yeah, the, the Wuhan lab thing must, it must be just like a weak virus, you know, released from wherever. And then I found out how they actually prove viruses. And uh, if you study a guy named uh, Stefan Lenka, uh, he's a, he used to be a virologist and uh, he did control experiments, which they don't bother to do on, on viral cultures uh, because their whole thing is basically like assuming that a sample has a virus in it, put mixing it in with like a bunch of uh, toxic antibiotics, right? And then the monkey cells that they put in the culture, they die. So, and that's called a cytopathic effect. So when those monkey cells die, they um, basically, that's their marker for proving that there is a new virus. And the whole thing is really anti-scientific and they've never done control experiments. So what Stefan Lanka did was he performed all these control experiments. He took the human, the clinical sample out of the culture, right? And he still got the cytopathic effect. And it's funny because they're putting monkey kidney cells in, right? And they're using nephrotoxins like uh, amphotericin, which is toxic to kidneys. I mean, you can Google this right now, amphotericin, you find out it's toxic to kidneys. So what do you think is going to happen when you put it in a culture with kidney cells? So <laughs> anyway, it's a very long you know, story, but... Um, much like David Icke, I, I do not believe in uh, th- this virus exists at all and uh, or any virus exists at all because there's no scientific proof for it. But that's uh, that's just my perspective. And, you know, I, I hope that people maybe look into it. Maybe it'll interest you and you'll look into it because it does make vaccines completely moot, you know. Yeah, well. Like I said, I, I've been getting the flu shot for 25 years. I haven't gotten the flu since. And, uh, I, I'm, mm. you know, that's just me, though. So, yeah, everybody has their own experience, right. you know. So, every, you know, everybody has their own their own journey. Um, all right. So so last question I want to ask you, what is what is Freemasonry taught you about um, sort of the history of the earth and and kind of uh, life in, in general? Well, I don't, I don't know. If, I don't know if Masonry has really taught me anything about the earth per se, but I guess one of the main tenets of masonry is to try to be the best person you can be. Um, that's ultimately, you know, what, what it's trying to do is trying to bring you, um, make you, make you the best person you can be. Um, and I can just tell you, just as my, again, my take on it, um, for me personally, going through the Masonic Lodge um, and understanding it and sort of, it, it kind of put, for me personally, it put me on the path. I, I mean, the only thing I can tell you is I could not write my books 
Um, I wouldn't have the symbolic eye that I have if it wasn't for my membership in Freemasonry. So that's sort of what I got out of it. I mean, you know, it's not why I joined it. I joined it, you know, because it was I, I come from a long line of Maryland Masons. And it was something I was just very interested in. But, um, you know, I, it Masonry tries to make you be the best person it could be. But for me, I was just interested in the Masonic symbolism, the the the, the allegories that were going on. And because of Masonry and having gone through it, I was able to research it. I had a better understanding having gone through it. And it basically opened me, my eyes to this world of symbolism, which hitherto didn't exist. And I'll just end up, I'll just end by saying that if it wasn't for my Masonic membership, my books wouldn't exist. Very cool. Well, Robert, I can't thank you enough for uh, first time by to chat with me. I found this really fascinating and I hope that you will uh, come back again because I'm sure we could talk for another, uh, you know, hour or so on this stuff. No, well, thank you, Patrick, for having me on a light on. It was my pleasure to be here. And uh, absolutely, maybe in six, seven months, we'll do it again. And uh, certainly we have plenty to talk about. You know, I mean, I've come on podcasts more than once. I usually wait about six, seven months, but we certainly go over a new slate of movies or whatever you want to talk about. Absolutely. Great. Thanks so much. Okay, thank you. All right. Take care. The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. It is provided for informational purposes only. Alighton does not endorse nor accept responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions expressed by its guests.